I would say I'm not used to that work. So happy you could join us for this very special and also unfortunately final episode of the first season of Nianza. It's very special as we have not one but two guests who will tell us all about code switching past and present in order to celebrate multilingualism in all its forms. As a bonus, you'll learn why glosses might be the tweets of the Middle Ages. And also, don't forget to sign up for our online conference on medieval multilingual manuscripts in May 2021. Enjoy! Hello, Agus Falciaresh, to the seventh episode of Nianza, which is a very special edition, uh, as it not only wraps up season one of the series, uh, but it is also an experimental episode in which I invited two guests. Um, and the occasion for this is the conference Medieval Multilingual Manuscripts uh, that is to be held virtually at Dias later this month, uh, as we're releasing this podcast in May. Uh, and which will celebrate medieval multilingualism in its many forms. So in this podcast, uh, my guests are Dr. Jacopo Bizani from uh, NUI, um, uh, NUI Galway and Dr. Teresa Lin of Dublin City University. Uh, and I've invited uh, these two speakers because um, both of them have done some research on uh, bilingualism or multilingualism. But before I give too much away, I will let them introduce themselves with the formula that we always use in the podcast, uh, which is... Uh, what is your name and what brought you here? Um, and let's uh, start with Jacopo. Would you like to... Uh, to introduce yourself. Of course, hello everyone, first of all. Uh, so my name is Jacopo Bizani, as uh, Nike said, uh, pronouncing my name correctly, which is quite uh, an amazing feat in itself. <laughs> it would be the... quite tricky for me in a podcast on multilingualism to mispronounce your name, so that would be very embarrassing. So I'm glad that uh, that's the first check of our list. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yes, I'm, I'm from Italy originally, but I work in anyway Galway. Um, so, yes, how I got here, uh, that's a, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a long story, of course. I don't know in, in, in how much detail I need to go. <laughs> we like long stories, but uh, I don't know. Yeah. I Just suppose that the, the, the simplest way to describe it is that ancient languages have always been with me, mm -hmm. uh, and especially Latin. I started studying Latin at the age of 13, which in Italy, thankfully, you can still do. Mm -hmm. um, and then the interest in Celtic languages and culture uh, came a little bit later when I was a teenager. Uh, strangely enough, perhaps it came through Irish music, Irish tra traditional music. Oh, wow, I, cool. I, I got a really, really strong interest in, in that. And through music, I discovered uh, the language wow. and, um, and the, the, the very interesting, fascinating, deep uh, history and culture of the country. I think, so, um, sorry to interrupt you, but that segue is kind of similar to Andrea Palandri's uh, segue into Irish, who's also Italian, so, uh, yes, or part yes. Italian anyway, so that's an interesting and, uh, similarity. And an excellent you. fiddler. Yes, uh, indeed. I play, yes. I play Elon Pipes. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> you make quite the team. <laughs> 
And uh, so then I was lucky enough to be able to combine this newly found interest in, in the Celtic world with an interest in uh, ancient languages because in the I went to study to the University of Pisa uh, where I did a program in Indo-European uh, linguistics and Celtic philology was part of that. And it's mm -hmm. one of the very, very few places in Italy where you can study uh, Celtic philology. So I graduated in Celtic philology with Professor Filippo Motta there. And then thanks to a faithful Erasmus back in 2002, in Galway, that mm. provided all the information and the connections that enabled me to go back to Galway after my Italian graduation to do a PhD with, uh, under the supervision of uh, Professor Morini Ronacu. And that was a PhD on this old Irish text, which is quite well known, which is uh, Abra Colum Kille, mm -hmm. the lament for Saint Columba. Uh, I think falsely believed to be the, one of the <laughs> earliest texts yes. in, the, in the Irish language. And if our listeners want to know more about that, uh, they can actually buy your book. This is a shameless plug. They can buy your book <laughs> at the Dublin Institute for Advanced uh, Studies uh, bookshop. Um, yes. Because you make quite intriguing, out, uh, uh, you have a quite intriguing thesis there. So I would definitely recommend it to everyone to uh, have a look at your book. Also, it's uh, in the words of Mia Hoyne, a great spider killer. Because um, it's, uh, it's 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 quite hefty. <laughs> I think it can kill all sorts of animals. Yes. Really, because it's, it is very heavy. So uh, uh, it it is heavy also for a reason. That is that uh, it's it's a work that was in uh, production for very many years and. Um, and it is ultimately the result uh, of and the, the adaptation of my PhD thesis mm. uh, from from Galway. And then after my PhD graduation, I was, uh, I could say, lucky enough to find a job as a, as a lecturer in classics mm -hmm. in, uh, in NUA Galway. And I've been there in classics uh, ever since. And it is there. And during my PhD and then in classics that I met my people that became my best friends and uh, uh, later my colleagues, Mark Stansbury, Porik Moran, and especially mm. Imo Varnches, who is the main culprit for my current <laughs> interest in computus, which I think we'll, we'll probably talk about uh, yes. uh, more uh, later. So yeah. yeah, that's that's the story. Excellent. Thank you very much. And already the bilingualism is uh, sort of in your story because you teach in classics, but you also do Celtic philology and you're Italian yourself. So that's quite, uh, quite beautiful. Uh, and Teresa, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Uh, thank you for having me um, on this podcast. Um, I'm glad you were able to. I uh, initially wasn't <laughs> <laughs> initially wasn't sure where I'd fit in because I work in modern Irish but now mm. I'm starting to see we can join the dots and um, so I actually have a background in um, computational linguistics which I'll explain a little bit more detail um, later on yes um, but basically it's the intersection of linguistics and uh, computer science and helping computers to understand human languages and so I did an undergraduate degree in Adam DCU um, Let's just say a long time ago. Mm. <laughs> and uh, but my focus at the time was on uh, French. So we had to, oh, have a, a, you know, elective. So French and I did an Erasmus here in France. Um, and then I worked in industry for several years um, in the area of language technology. And I worked working on proofing tools, like spell checkers, hyphenated mm. um, machine translation. And I did a lot of this work when I emigrated to Australia. Right. And when I was in Australia, I got very homesick and <laughs> I discovered there was an Irish language group meeting every Tuesday night in 
uh, in Melbourne, oh, where wow. I was at the time. And yeah, and I loved it because for about an hour and a half, two hours every Tuesday, I felt like I was at home. That's and lovely. my Irish at the time was quite rusty. So and French kept coming into my head. And <laughs> but anyway, I persevered. And um, but more, more importantly, was like the network I made through that hmm. group. Um, um, one particular strong um, contact was Dr. Pamela O'Neill, who's associated with the University of Sydney, yes. um, who works in medieval uh, Irish and all sorts of wonderful stuff. And when I moved to Sydney, uh, I joined her reading group in medieval Irish. Oh, and that's my only knowledge. I'm not going to say I know much, but <laughs> we, we did look at Crick. We looked at Crick Outlook and I had a, a really really enjoyed the content of wow. that and that's not an and easy text to eyes, uh, to start off with well, let's say i didn't read it she she read it and explained <laughs> it to us yeah. um but anyway spend a lot of time with her and the late uh and great andres alquist mm. between them they convinced me anyway i should do a phd and um so i did i started at macquarie university in sydney i had a joint setup it's called a coat hotel between Macquarie and DCU I wanted to keep a contact like the tie with Ireland because I was focused on Irish language for my PhD so I did the PhD on um automatic parsing of the Irish language oh so wow essentially teaching computers how to pull apart an Irish sentence and identify the grammatical role of each word in in the mm. sentence um, and the purpose of that is obviously to help computers to fully understand, well, fully, <laughs> say fully, <laughs> to some degree, understand what, what's um, being said in a sentence, like what the intended meaning is, and so on. So, uh, yeah, it's my PhD, and I came back and then did um, a postdoc a couple of years. In, I'm now in the ADAPT Centre, mm. which is an SFI-funded research centre in DCU and so after a couple of years postdoc I got my own funding from the Department of the Gaeltacht for Fantastic. a four-year program that I um this is the final year so I've been managing that um which is essentially an extension of the research I did during my PhD so mm -hmm. um I have two uh, postgraduate uh, students master's student and a PhD student um, and my former supervisor, Jennifer Foster, she is supervising these students with me um, since I got her on board with the love for Irish and the interest in it. Oh, excellent. Um, and I had a couple of research assistants as well working on um, the... Uh, I won't go into too much detail because it's a spoiler alert, but yeah, <laughs> working on the project, let's see. Cliffhanger. Working on the project. <laughs> yeah. Cliffhanger, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're at the end of the, that um, that project now this year. So mm -hmm. basically, I spend a lot a lot of time working on technology for Irish language. So the motivation really is that um, minority languages are not fully or well supported by technology these days. Mm -hmm. So while we have all these advances in state of the art. Um, um, you know, mobile devices, smartphones, word processing, all this sort of stuff. It's really only a very few languages that are well supported by these technologies. And really, it, it comes down to investment, like um, mm. tech companies are only going to invest into the languages that have 
um, a lot of speakers behind them that they can see there's economic value in there and so on. So yes. what happens to minority languages, they're left by the wayside and it's down to the government to fund projects or maybe even hobbyists or researchers to pick up some projects, but it's not, um, it's not sustainable that way. Mm. So essentially with this gap, I just decided I'd apply my skills to try and address some of the gaps in, in that area. Yeah, Irish. Oh, excellent. Very good. And do you think this might be um, uh, running and going ahead of myself as well? But do you think if things were um, less bleak in that perspective, that it would be a boost for minority languages if they had more support from uh, from the technical side? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there is there is a genuine risk of the term of digital extinction for some languages. Now, this doesn't apply to all languages because you have a spectrum of um, low resource, endangered, and so on. So there's a different spectrum and each language has different needs depending on where they fall on that spectrum. But uh, say, for example, minority languages in Europe, you could draw the parallel between the invention of the printing press when a lot of minority regional languages were left behind because they didn't go into print, right? Mm. So same with the minority languages today in Europe, if they're not fully supported, people default to using the technology in the language that they can right. use as a second language. Yes. In our case, it's English. So we would then default to say, okay, I don't have predictive text in Irish. I'll just text in, in English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, can't, um, I can't use Siri in Irish yet yeah <laughs> um well I'll, I'll, okay i speak to it in english we can't do we can't search in wikipedia for this information because it's not there in irish i'll just look it in, in english oh well they might as well write the essay in english yeah, and so yeah, on and yeah. so forth um, uh, especially a huge problem would be um the lack of technology in schools for computer-aided language learning. So, you know, these mm. apps where kids come into class, so you could imagine kids coming in learning Spanish, German, French, and they have these apps and it's all very up-to-date and relevant. Yeah. And then they go into an Irish class and they're working out of a copy book right. and a textbook. Yes. And yeah, yeah, yeah. already the mindset switches to this is outdated, it's irrelevant, and so on. Yeah, so yeah. there's so much risk there. So technology can help it. And at the same time, it is, it's a double-edged sword, like it's actually undermining languages yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Very important point. And I think we'll, we'll get back to that uh, later on in the podcast as well. And I also think that the reason I've invited the two of you uh, on an episode on multilingualism is becoming quite, quite clear. So... Uh, uh, Teresa, with your work as well on Irish and English in uh, in Ireland in the present day, and then uh, Jacopo, who has done uh, extensive research, I can say, on bilingualism in the Middle Ages. Um, so the the whole idea of bilingualism, I suppose, in the Middle Ages might come as a surprise to people. So Jacopo, could you maybe briefly explain the um, the linguistic situation of medieval Ireland for us? Yeah, and I can certainly, I mean, I refer back to, to my own work and my own interest in, in that topic. Mm. It's uh, an interest that comes from uh, something that I could say I've, I've always worked on. 
I've always been interested in uh, Ireland in the wider context. Right. Okay, yes. So uh, uh, Ireland, with Avra Kolmkile, it was, uh, for instance, the, the late antique uh, background in terms of biblical exegesis that could be seen in the text. Now, for, with my current project, is con intellectual contacts between Ireland and the continent, especially Brittany in, in the Carolingian age. With uh, that project on uh, bilingualism in early medieval Ireland, it was about Ireland in the wider context of uh, the languages of the medieval church. Mm -hmm. So obviously, in particular, Latin. Um, the interest came from a realization uh, of the great potential that old Irish glosses had in respect to this kind of study. And, and it was a potential that had never been exploited. So just in case some listeners don't know what Old Irish glosses are, mm -hmm. uh, we have a certain number of manuscripts dating mostly from the 8th, 9th century, uh, where uh, a great variety of texts, many biblical, some uh, about grammar or about uh, computus, uh, are explained. So the, the main text is in Latin, but they are explained with little annotations in the interlinear spaces or in the margins of these manuscripts. And many of these annotations are uh, either monolingual Latin mm -hmm. or monolingual Irish, Old Irish, or in very many cases, a mixture of the two. Which is what uh, we love. <laughs> which is what we love. And <laughs> so there is a switching, so a code switch from uh, Irish to Latin or from Latin to Irish happening hundreds and hundreds of times. So um, when I started working on that strand or, or, or on that di research direction, there wasn't really that much available in print about mm -hmm. that topic, about really uh, bilingualism in written sources from that period. A few articles had been written before, yeah, but... Yeah, Nicole Miller very, and David Dunfield and... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, little, very little work had been done specifically on the glosses. So I thought rather than uh, keeping using uh, Old Irish glosses just as a, as a sort of repository of grammatical forms, we can actually use them as real texts with a meaning with a world, uh, even a cultural and a social world around them, and as the product of real people who spoke, presumably, uh, different languages. And so uh, these glosses are certainly the product of a bilingual culture. The monasteries of early medieval Ireland must have been places where uh, uh, Old Irish and Latin were used routinely, side by side. Mm -hmm. Uh, quite naturally, I would argue that Latin was learned by monks at a very early age, which means that probably they developed a very, very high degree of competence in Latin, in spoken Latin as well. Yes, yeah. And that is the kind of evidence that I tried to study in the glosses. I tried to use methodological frameworks that had been elaborated mostly from uh, modern uh, code switching situations and, and bilingualism. So mm -hmm. I used in particular a, a theoretical model called the matrix language frame model elaborated by Carol Myers Cotton. Uh, and uh, it, the, my study showed that there was a certain level of overlap or certainly a certain degree of similarity between what you observe in the modern code oral code switching and what you can see in these written forms of code switching from the early Middle Ages. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of uh, neatly ties Teresa into all this because you too have looked at code switching uh, and you too, while you were looking at modern code switching, you also looked at 
written code switching. So can you tell us a bit more about the sources you used to analyze um, Irish code switching? Yeah, yeah. so um, this is where we first met online. Yes. And <laughs> um, I came when I came across your work. So I'll backtrack a little bit to explain why I ended up doing what I was doing. Mm. So um, for just to explain the technology these days. So I'm in the area of artificial intelligence and the tools that we work on these days are much different in the past. So in the past, you would have to write um, rules. Say, for example, if you were looking at a party, you would write grammar rules to explain to a computer what's possible in a language and so on. And it takes years to do that sort of stuff. I've done it before, <laughs> actually for Tagalog to English, um, right. which is another story. But um, what we do now these days is this, era, it, this age of big data, machine learning, neural networks, what we need to do is train the system by giving it loads of examples of text so it can predict a certain task. And so in the terms of parsing, you give it a corpus, we call it a tree bank, and you give it a corpus of as many possible ones say, I can't give a number because it's with a low resource <laughs> language, you're you're lucky to have a few thousand. So if you're working in English, you could have like a million sentences. Right. But these sentences are annotated with the syntax. So basically this connection is this is a, the subject of this verb and this is the preposition of this verb and so on. Tedious work. Mm. And so that annotated corpus um, is fed into the system so through statistics and probabilities it's able to see patterns and then predict when it sees a new sentence how to parse that new sentence so that's what my phd was focused on but for standard irish so mm -hmm. grammatically uh, correct well-written edited text right and during the phd i had it uh, because four years this type of work is quite uh, you know intense yes and I had an opportunity <laughs> sometimes you like a change of scenery I had an opportunity I got a Fulbright scholarship to work in the US St. Louis uh, University with um, professors Kevin Scannell um, who does a lot for the Irish language in terms of technology anyway and I had to put together a proposal I thought let's look at different type of text so I decided to look at Irish on Twitter and do a collection, make a collection of tweets. Mm. And the idea was basically to see how my tools at that stage or even other tools were able to cope right. with this different type of text because the text you find on Twitter is less restrictive and um, just due to the nature of the space, if you like, it's more informal. People feel a little bit safer about being relaxed around, especially mm. around Irish because can always be tensed up about my Irish isn't good enough and right. I don't know the genitive case of this right yeah, yeah I'm yeah. not allowed. a lot of people feel they're not allowed to use Irish maybe mm. um in the in the real world whereas online they can be a little bit braver um so it was when I started looking through tweets so essentially we had I think I collected 1500 tweets and started looking through the tweets to notice uh, the differences in, in what you find and the challenges that would, would be presented to technology that's trying to understand mm -hmm. the text. And there was all sorts of wonderful stuff, like it, as normal, you would drop a fada or you could uh, take out vowels. So, you know, in English, we would say people, PPL and so on. Right. Like that. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, there would be like creation of new words and coining new terms and um, obviously punctuation is done away with <laughs> <That's> a big <laughs> yes. issue um 
And then code switching. So code switching is this other thing that presents a challenge for, for technology. If the, te mm. if the system is expecting to see Irish yes. and suddenly English is thrown in there, then it falls over, right? So you mm. need to be able to inform it of what to do with the with the switched text. Yeah. Um, now, English-Irish code switch tweets is not new. I mean, it's, it's code switching happens all over the world in, in every bilingual environment. Um, but it was just really interesting to come across this in this study and sort of dig down into it and to see, number one, how the language is being used online and how mm -hmm. it's sort of evolving. And, and then what I was particularly interested in was where switching points would occur. Right. So where people feel comfortable with switching. So we found that uh, to switch a noun is fine. Okay, so you, I think we had a couple of tweets from um, elections and it said figury nua tally t-a-l-l-y mm. so noun in there that's fine that switch is easy but for example it didn't seem so easy to switch a verb mm. and that's an, what seems to be is the structure of irish so you have verb subject object and it causes all sorts of chaos when it's intersection <laughs> with yes. sur subject verb object right and so the verb was only switched on its own if the subject was dropped right so you say mm. wish not of in you i wish i wish i didn't have to do any work today but the eyes drop and so it seems like to flow but you wouldn't say wish may not grab right. it just it's yeah, awkward yeah. right yeah and started digging down into this sort of stuff. And obviously, I hadn't really gone into bilingualism or code switching before because it wasn't really my area. Mm. Uh, and when you start doing your research, you go into a bit of a, a rabbit hole. Oh, and that's yes. where I found your thesis. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, my God, this is so cool. The monks used to code switch between, <laughs> yes. between Latin and medieval Irish. Yeah. How, how brilliant is this? Because I think in the paper that Kevin and I published, we were trying to show that um, code switch is not a new invention. And mm -hmm. a lot of people, uh, understandably, they're protective of the language, but they can be very negative towards code switching and say that it pollutes the language or it's a new thing that the new generation are bringing in that's yes. going to damage it. Yeah. And to be able to point back and say, no, actually, this has happened in medieval ages in Ireland. <laughs> yeah. Latin and medieval Irish coexisted and it seemed to be fine. No big deal. Why does it have to be a big deal now yeah. in this forum? Right. Yeah. Um, and on top of that, what was great was in any other, there's very minimal work done on code switching in Irish in general, in mm. modern Irish. That's interesting. Is that um, and yeah. a lot of it is a lot of it's focused on spoken Irish. So transcripts mm. of speech which is totally different to looking at tweets where people are writing and intentionally switching at particular stages. Um, at the time I did the work, we had the 140 character limit for tweets. So mm. potentially some choices might have been to do with space. So in Irish, usually we need more words than in English. So maybe just to switch a couple yeah, of words. Or even characters. <laughs> Our characters, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so, um, yeah, it, there's so much in there that you could, you know, delve mm. into. But what I was doing at that time is just sort of like um, more, more like a pilot study to see, is this an area worth looking yeah. into? Yeah. Um, and I, and I, it was. And so, yeah. 
Oh, sorry. Yeah, I wanted to say I could see Jacopo nodding uh, along when you were talking probably about, you know, uh, trying to prove this is not a new thing uh, that it happens in text and maybe even the type of code switches, uh, Jacopo. Yeah, I mean, in practically everything that Teresa said, I could recognize counterparts mm. in the Middle Ages yes. uh, or in our own field anyway. Uh, the, the, the prejudice against code switching actually existed then. Um, we, yes. we do have a few <laughs> authors who actually apologize for having to use uh, words in Irish in the middle of a Latin text. Mm. Um, so it, it shows that certainly Latin was the really high register language. Irish probably had a lower register and therefore had its use had to be justified in some way. And just like tweets have that low level of formality that allows people to to speak and or, or write rather in this case more yeah. a bit more naturally that was also the feeling i had to some extent for the glosses as well that is that the language was a bit more informal and therefore could perhaps be seen as slightly closer to the spoken language um, it, it is, of course, a bit more complicated than that, but at least in some glosses, you can see that that is probably true. And even the example that Teresa provided as to the difficulty of uh, including verbs in mm. uh, code switching, that has an exact match with my corpus, yes. where yeah. verbs included in a switch are extremely rare. And in fact, uh, switching from Latin to Irish is much less common than switching from Irish to Latin uh, by inserting a few Latin words in the middle of a syntactic frame, which is essentially Irish. So it it, it seems very, very similar uh, to, to what she was talking about. So if you also consider the fact that glosses, you typically have a limited length Yes. Uh, and they are heavily abbreviated. <laughs> they are the very glosses, similar, yes. Glosses are medieval tweets. Yes. <laughs> that's a nice take uh, from this podcast. <laughs> I like that. Yes, yeah, that's very good. I don't know, actually, um, do you guys have a favorite uh, code switch? I don't know if you've brought any. Uh, if not, I, I did bring one, so I could... Uh, I do. I have a few different ones. So oh, cool. we, uh, I don't know if if uh, in your work, Jacopo, you would break it into this, but in code switching uh, um, literature, they tend to categorize the types of switches. So you have intersentential. So you have a phrase in one and then you switch into another one yeah. in another language. Um, in that same vein, you can have a bilingual tweet, so uh, or bilingual code switch, which in Twitter happens when people have um, bilingual audience. So mm. they'll tweet in English, in Irish, and then they give the translation in English. Yes. Um, another one is intrasentential. So this is where it's a bit like that figuring new Italy um, or Wishnakrov is where you have to sort of interweave the syntax of the two languages together. So they're you know they're quite tightly. Um, connected and then at the word level where they're mixed so I'll give you a few I've written down a few for each one so cool. um, I like the inter this is inter um, sentence is quite frequent on, on Twitter so intercarfraud defo go see it so that's just you know talking about a movie yes definitely but there's no reason to switch it's just lovely it's like why switch well I might as well why not you yeah know, just, <laughs> um, <laughs> or fecking me should go a safe trip and maybe oh, there's lovely. something nice yeah. about safe trip, but you know, yeah. then then trying to put the whole thing into Irish. Um, 
intra Bay Two Grand. So, you know, Shinjas, like Bay Two Grand. That's why lovely. not? You know, everybody loves the grand word, and you wouldn't want to have to translate that into Irish. And <laughs> um, I really, I really like that Wishnakra Bobberla Jane of Elgum. And in another way, we have turns out go will blah blah blah. Mm, you know, that's so very good. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, but the word switching, the word level switching is the one I like. So we had uh, Shazam all. So, you know, Shazam yes. for recognizing music <laughs> yeah. or identifying a song. Yeah. So yeah, Shazam yeah, all. Yeah. This A for the I-L, you know, the gerund ending. Very productive ending. Uh, in Irish to make. Very uh, productive. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So just, you know, add it on anywhere. But the interesting one was but that wasn't egg Shazam all. It was or Shazam all. It was a Janus. Shazam all. Oh, which right. Which is really curious. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, uh, that type of word level switching is quite prevalent in, in spoken Irish, especially in Connemara. I don't know if Connemara is any different than in the north or down in Munster, but, you know, Moicicle yeah. or a Google all or whatever, you know, especially with newer terms. I did get told off once uh, in Dingle when I was talking to a campsite owner. I was trying to book my site in Irish and I said something like, oh, uh, I will to a paint tile or something. He was painting something. It was like, oh, sure, you learned your Irish in Connemara. <laughs> <laughs> all these aisles <laughs> use a good Irish word yeah so uh, <laughs> it's definitely I think more prevalent maybe in Connemara but uh, yeah oh, those yeah. are they, those are great uh, examples uh, Jacopo do you have a, a yeah I, I can cite two um, mm. one from the glosses and one from another source so one from the glosses just since we've been talking about them just to show the kind of really really tight interplay that there can be between the two languages yes there is a gloss i really like from the corpus in uh, a manuscript now in Würzburg in germany and it's a, a very very big collection of glosses to the letters of saint paul and the name of the biblical patriarch abraham appears and he is explained uh, with a gloss that means uh, translated into english uh, he is therefore the father of all the people right uh, the way that is expressed is is pater sov omnis gentis trisodin oh wow where you also have a, well the copula is at the beginning is in irish then you have pater in latin then you have sov, this emphasizing particle attached to the Latin word, then omnis gentis, genitive in Latin, and then trisodin, <laughs> thereby, therefore, in Irish again. So it's a continuous moving between languages and even attaching some morphological em elements yeah. to Latin, from Irish to Latin words. Very beautiful. Uh, uh, the yeah. other one comes from uh, a, a text on computus. So uh, just saying in, in a couple of words what Computus is, uh, it's the medieval science of time reckoning. So it's uh, the study of anything that has to do with time, both theoretically, the kind of the, the nature and structure of time, and especially more practically, how to count time, uh, how to establish an ecclesiastical calendar, and especially mm. the big question, how to find the date of Easter. Yes, that was very important for the medieval Irish. Uh, uh, well, for everybody. For, well, for, well, yes, for the whole, <laughs> but the medieval the Irish are the, famous for it. <laughs> the Irish are famous for it, but the, the, the Easter controversy has been raging since late antiquity, and uh, it, it actually hasn't yes. stopped yet. 
Oh, that's and, interesting. Uh, I didn't know that actually. Yes. yes no. It, 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 for instance, there is still a controversy, an Easter controversy between the Orthodox world and the Western Christian, Catholic, and Protestant world. Mm. So it's a very, very long story. And the Irish were particularly good at inventing, basically, uh, a new textual genre, which is the computistical textbook. So in the seventh century, they thought, okay, there, this is a very difficult subject and it's a very important one. And we don't have clear textbooks explaining uh, all the details of computers. So they came up with this genre, the earliest one, uh, which is the text from which this code switch comes, uh, was discovered by my colleague and friend Imo Varantius in 2006. Uh, it was probably written either at the very end of the 7th century or at the beginning of the 8th. And mm. uh, now it's in a manuscript in uh, the monastery of Einsiedeln in Switzerland. Uh, so it's a single copy from a continental hand. Um, and it presents, like several of these Irish computistical textbooks, it presents a number of switches from Latin to Irish. They are typically intersentential. Okay, so the, mm. you have a, a sentence ending in Latin and then a new sentence begins in Irish. And they're typically meant to explain uh, subtle technicalities that might be hard to understand for students uh, if they were explained only in Latin. Yeah. So Irish has a, a didactic function in these texts. And in particular, there is a passage in this Computus Einsiedlensis, uh, so from, from circa 700, where uh, there is a very, very complex calculation involved. And in the middle of this calculation, there is a fraction. And medieval people were incredibly bad at fractions. <laughs> Uh, medieval mathematics just can't do fractions properly, <laughs> apart from the really common ones. And here they had to use the fraction 5 twelfth. Right. And the teacher who wrote this text didn't quite know how to explain what mm. 5 twelfth is. So he switches to Irish and he says, in a very, very archaic form of, of Old Irish, he says, Ma triun laigu leuth. So that's more than one third, less than one half which is precisely what 512 is. 512 yes. is in the middle between the value of one third and one half. Yes. Uh, and the reason why I love that gloss is not just that it's brilliant, I think, in its contents, mm. but also that the way in which it was found. So Imo found all these forms in Old Irish in this manuscript in Einsiedeln. He doesn't really know much Old Irish. So uh, I was doing a PhD at the time, at the same time as him. So he asked me, well, what's all this stuff? <laughs> uh, and so he came to my apartment here in Galway um, with some uh, photocopies from the microfilm of, of the manuscripts. And we sat with, with him and then my wife was there as well. And she has an interest in, uh, in Irish too. It was a very, very rainy day. I can remember it as if it was today. And we just sat for a whole afternoon trying to figure out what these uh, Irish words were. And, okay. and nobody had seen them for, uh, for over a thousand years. That's amazing. So that was one yeah. of the high points of, of my <laughs> life, I would say. So it's a, it's a code switch that has a very uh, strong personal resonance. I can imagine. That's definitely something to be proud of as well and to uh, fondly look back on, I suppose. Well, I'll, I'll give you my favorite code switch as well, because like Teresa mentioned, uh, and like Jacopo, I've worked on uh, 
Irish Latin code switching as well. In fact, Jacopo was on my Viva committee, so he was uh, asking me all these difficult questions. <laughs> which uh, Difficult but nice, come on. Difficult but nice, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> also, they didn't have to be nice, but uh, no, but uh, and I survived and I was very, I was uh, a better researcher because of it. Uh, but uh, one of the um, glosses that I really like also because it shows the, uh, intricacies of code switching. I looked at glosses as well, but they were a bit later than Jacopo's glosses. They were probably Middle Irish, most of them. And they are attached to a medieval saint's calendar. So they're explaining stories about saints and, and anecdotes, and they're explaining some word forms, maybe uh, those types of things. Uh, and they do that in Irish and Latin as well. Some glosses are mixed, some are monolingual. Uh, and one of the glosses um, explains the name of a saint called uh, Conadil, um, who is mentioned in the martyrology. And the gloss says, uh, Edon Cona Eche Intanem. So Cona is his name. Uh, and then it goes on with a clause that starts on end. Uh, but of course, the word for end in these manuscripts is abbreviated like we might do today as well. So it, um, we used uh, the Latin et sign today in our text, but in these medieval manuscripts, they used a sign that was familiar. It looks a bit like a seven and it's a Tyronean note and it can be used in Latin for et, but it could also be used in Irish for ocus. Um, so the clause starts with that abbreviation. I'm not giving away whether it's Irish or Latin because, well, in fairness, I don't know. Then it says took. So that's an Irish verb um, for to bring usually. Uh, sua mater. So his mother in Latin. Per pietatem aditamentum syllabe dil edon dil lem cona. So that basically means and his mother out of love joined the addition of the syllable dil, dear, to his name. So it's saying first his name is Conna, but his mother added a syllable meaning sweet or dear to it. Uh, and that's why he's now called Conadil. Um, and what I love is that I'm not sure to this day where the switch point is, because we have yeah. this Irish verb took uh, <laughs> and we have the phrase sua mater. So you would say maybe that's the switch point. But if we were take, to take this abbreviation, this Tyronean note for end as Latin, then it would be an inserted verb. And we've just heard how special uh, those are because we don't find them uh, that often. So to me, this just remains an intriguing switch because I can't quite put my finger on what type of switch it is to this day. And also the content is rather lovely to have a saint's mother uh, be mentioned uh, to explain the name of a saint. So those are, oh, that's lovely. Thanks for your contributions on, on your favorite uh, code switches. Um, I was just thinking there while, you, while uh, Jacopo was talking about, you know, a yeah. few people looking at a word or whatever going, what is this? What? <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, Kevin and I had the same issue with one particular word that I remember. Um, and it's a fada. I C B H E A R D. There possibly could have been an I at the end, I R D, but A for the I C B H E A R D. And we looked at it for so long. It's like, what is oh. this? But if you if you read it through yeah. Irish phonetics, it's awkward. <laughs> and it made sense actually in the context, but it took so long to figure that out. That is so, so brilliant. Anyway, there's the type of cookie things that you might find. Yes. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> and I'm sure fun. we'll all start spelling awkward that way now on uh, Twitter. Just to I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, yeah. It'll be in the new. Uh, well, it's, it's quite similar to what happens with Manx, exactly. isn't it? Where uh, the language is uh, mm. is, is Manx, but it's spelled with uh, a, a system that basically derives from English. Yes, I think so, so too. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's oh, almost right. like the, the reversed yeah. situation of, of what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And okay. that's also interesting in the light of, I suppose, bilingualism and identity and community. Um, so Jacopo, your current project, I think, um, even though you have tried to convince me it doesn't deal with bilingualism or multilingualism, in fact, actually, <laughs> I think uh, does so very nicely. You've even discovered a new Old Breton gloss, which is uh, very exciting. Um, but in your research on in your new project, you you really stress that um, the medieval Irish who worked on these computational texts had a strong sense of identity and community when they were working on this material. And uh, this is perhaps linked to the fact that we find code switches uh, maybe in these texts. But can you tell us something more about the, um, the sense of community uh, or the, the way that this intellectual community worked in the Middle Ages? Yeah, well, that's still an open question. Mm, um, <laughs> the the project, I should, I'll, I'll just announce that the name of the project is uh, Ireland and Carolingian Brittany Text and Transmission. It is funded by the Laureate Programme of the Irish Research Council. And we are looking mostly at uh, computistical texts. Uh, that's me and PhD student, Paula Harrison. And then uh, there is a postdoctoral researcher, uh, Sarah Corrigan, who works on manuscripts on biblical exegesis. And uh, it's all about trying to understand how a number of uh, Hiberno-Latin texts on computers and exegesis ended up on the continent in particular with a prominent connection with Brittany. Mm. Okay, so the big question is whether we are talking about a direct connection between Ireland, uh, Brittany, and then the continent, or whether the Bretons get these Irish texts from elsewhere. Uh, so this is all the, these are all the things that we're trying to answer. And uh, many of these texts, both the original Irish texts and then the Breton derivatives, I suppose, mm. uh, yeah, very often present uh, elements in the vernacular, often in the form of code switches within the text or in the form of glosses. And uh, as you said, Nike, uh, there is sometimes mm. the impression that there is a sense of ethnic self-awareness, uh, which we don't know whether we should attribute to text written in Ireland, therefore self ethnic self-awareness of Irish people living and working and writing in Ireland, mm -hmm. or whether we are talking about Irish communities on the continent in uh, monasteries, for instance, in northern Francia, which I think is definitely a possibility where Irish is used within a small intellectual community on the continent, in which mm -hmm. case, of course, code switching to Irish can become almost an, a, an exclusive yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> technique, almost like a, an in-group uh, language. And also there are certainly um, the references to authorities uh, that would have been important for the Irish and practically unknown for every, everybody else. So I recently discovered the mention of St. Adovnan of Iona, in uh, uh, one of these manuscripts, an Irish manuscript on computers, but probably produced by an Irishman on the continent. Right. 
uh, citing out of none as an authority. So there is this uh, certainly harking back to uh, an ethnicity. However, I think it's also very important not to project modern hmm. nationalism yes. onto the Middle Ages in the sense that being too attached to uh, a sense of local identity in the Middle Ages can also be very problematic. If you say to someone that he is provincial in his beliefs, for instance, you are basically accusing that person of being a, a heretic mm. because that person is clinging to local beliefs that may be in contradiction with the teachings of the universal church. Right. So I rather have the, the feeling that when uh, uh, an Irish, medieval Irish writer refers to his own language or to a textual authority from his own uh, country is not so much, so much to mark his provincial ethnic right. nature, but rather to say, look, we have these very important authorities that are correct and that support the view that should be the universal view. Mm. So in a way, they are taking these local elements in order to be universal. Right. Uh, which oh, wow. is a strange yeah. it's, it's a strange twist it's a nice no i like it it's a it's a nice twist and teresa do you see that for irish on twitter and and i think you call it user generated content so online uh interaction do you see content yeah function um, in that way yeah it's a, um, i'm not sure if it's exactly the same thing but it's this idea of know your audience so definitely mm. i mean if people are using those bilingual tweets they might have bilingual followers but we have noticed that there, I mean, you can you can gather data and um, watch patterns. So you can see that some people will tweet in Irish about a particular topic. Hmm. And they know the followers that they have around that topic. So, for example, GAA, right? That's yes. when they might be more likely to talk about the GAA in Irish. Hmm. But, um, for example, when the World Cup was on in Brazil, uh, this is even before I did the work with Kevin. We were trying to build a machine translation system for tweets at the Adapt Center. And um, we put some effort into building an MT system for Irish tweets. And it turned out three people tweeted in Irish about, <laughs> about the World Cup. Because, I mean, what's the point, right? Because really? yes, yeah, you want yeah, the yeah. whole world. If you're going to do your hashtag Brazil World Cup or whatever, <laughs> you, you want the whole world to read them. So don't, you know, you know your audience type thing. Um, what we do want to do, I mean, we need a lot more data to be able to do this. We want to do is sort of cluster tweets. Um, you could, you mean you could have a collection of tweets that are in English and Irish from Ireland because you can you can retrieve the tweets through the Twitter API, but you can look at the geolocation as well of some of the tweets. So you can say these are all the tweets that came from Ireland right. within this time frame. And then you can use language identification to see if they were Irish or English. Mm -hmm. And then you might be able to cluster and see are the ones who are tweeting in Irish talking about something specific? And are they, you know, are they old, for example, putting it out there? Are they only a garon, like complaining about something to do with the Irish language? Mm. Or, are you know, because that can happen a lot sometimes in bubbles where, you know, it's a little bit like yeah. an, an echo chamber that can happen. Or are they talking about anything? They're talking about what's on TV, what was on Netflix last night, what was on, um, uh, what's on at the cinema. 
um, maybe about uh, something in the news, would they talk about what's happening in the US in Irish or would they tend to talk about that in English? And I think that's more related to who you want your audience to be. Do you want to mm. reach a, a wider a group or not? Yeah. Um, there are some people who will only tweet in Irish. We know for sure. Yes. And that's lovely. And they're very strict about it. And that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, but there are definitely the ones who will, and I mean, switch in terms, not just within the tweet, but they'll choose a language for mm. tweet based on who they want. Um, yeah. Which is something I do. Conversation. Yeah, which is something I do as well between Dutch yeah. and English. I mean, if I'm talking there about Dutch go. academe, yeah. it'll be in Dutch. Uh, if we're, yeah. you know, doing yeah. something international, it makes sense. It'll be English. Yeah. 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 yeah, But I think in in the future, um, when there's enough data, because again, we can't really model this type of stuff with a small corpus. But when mm. there's enough data, we might be able to see number one when people, what type of domain, what's the topic when people are using Irish, and then also within the Irish tweets when they switch. Right. What's that to do with? Right. Why yes. did they switch? Hmm. And would we be able to maybe identify, for example, are they switching because there is no accepted, I wouldn't even say standard, but accepted hmm. word in Irish for a particular word, if it's a new word. And hmm. um, so there we have found that people switch to certain words that are in folklore.ie or in Changdon. Um, but it hasn't been adopted by the Irish community. Right. And so yeah. people tend to go with a trend of, of they favor this other version. And so that can inform terminology, you know, and dictionary development as well, uh, either identifying the lack of Irish words that are out there or ones that people don't like yeah. <laughs> to use. <laughs> and they'd rather not go with that. I mean, there's the whole uh, Bratimacht and, you know, was it Brexit and what, you know, right. what people yes. were going to use for it. Um, a tweet all, for example, mm. uh, a gyoka was another version of that. Um, yeah, so uh, there could be different, um, you know, downstream applications of the, the data we've collected mm. and the type of insights that we can find from that, which is more or less looking at why are people tweeting in Irish and yeah. who the audience is and why would they switch and yeah. These phenomena that, that Teresa was talking about seem very similar to what happens in some code switching contexts where you have what is called compartmentalization, where a certain language gets strongly associated with a certain topic mm. or a certain semantic field so that you switch to that language in order to talk about that topic. This is again something I found in the glosses. It's something I, in, in an article I, I published a few years ago, I, I called the ecclesiastical technolect, so the technical language of the church. Uh, that is that there was a very strong tendency to switch from Irish to Latin every time that they wanted to use a, a, a technical world pertaining to Christian religion. So if you talk about the soul or sin or the church or uh, an abbot or you know any term pertaining to that language, it, it would tend to be in, in Latin. So you, you very often in, in switching situation, you can have these uh, um, kind of division of roles, I suppose, mm. at, attributed to different languages. Yeah, very good. And um, I see where the time is flying by. So uh, I think what I'd like most to discuss with you, um, maybe before we start to wrap up, is, uh, well, two things. Firstly, um, I'd like to give two quotes by you guys. Um, and then um, 
I'd like to ask you something about it. So Jacopo has said in a recent article that he published in the Dutch magazine Kelten, actually, uh, but it's an English article, so and it's open access, so anybody uh, can uh, can read it. He says um, there's no doubt that this work promises to make an important contribution to the redrawing of the map of connections between the many nameless scholars who, even in the midst of the endemic wars, turmoil and crises of the Middle Ages, nevertheless managed to create and consolidate a form of European intellectual culture more united and cohesive than modern nationalisms, popular perception and recent political developments might lead us to believe. So that's Jacopo's quote. And then Teresa, you in your article on on code switching, you have said, our study has revealed that Irish speaking online users switch effortlessly and effectively between Irish and English. This ease demonstrates the clever mix across the syntax paradigms of both languages and supports the argument that code switching is indeed a reflection of advanced grammatical ability. And I selected these quotes because I think both of them show um, um, how you to see your research working in the wider world, as it were, the impact that your search might have, and also how you might be uh, up against some prejudices. So we've already discussed um, uh, prejudices against code switches. So it's a, a sign of bad language or people just aren't good at any of the languages. And of course, people think of the Middle Ages as being, you know, backward and not uh, really, uh, they don't see it as a, as a high mark of intellectual culture. So I, I would like to ask you uh, if you could comment on how you see your work uh, or the impact of your work in, in a broader context in, in, in fighting perhaps these prejudices. Yeah, uh, I mean, yes, the, the, thank you for, for quoting that passage. Uh, <laughs> It is indeed something very important to me is to show that especially the early Middle Ages, which is the time I'm mostly interested in, is a time of very, very strong international connections, mm. uh, especially between intellectuals of uh, different parts of the of, of early medieval Europe. Yes. It shows that in spite of the political and military divisions, that were much worse then than, <laughs> than they are now, even even with Brexit. I mean, they, there's no comparison. But in spite of all that, uh, intellectuals, the scholarly community kept the flame burning, mm. uh, which is a great, I think, teaching for uh, for all of us. And I think that it's something that has been seen repeatedly through history, uh, that even in the darkest moments of mankind, scholars have kept doing their job. Wow. Uh, even mm. du during during Second World War, there were people studying, doing, doing medieval studies and, and, uh, and uh, writing old Irish grammars and so on, uh, which, you know, at some, at some stage, at some points, could almost be seen as futile. It's something that I wonder myself many times during this pandemic, you know, mm. I'm here working on early medieval Brittany and Ireland and look at the situation out there. No, actually, it is our responsibility to keep doing our job at the best of our ability, regardless of the circumstances outside. And especially, yeah, I think promoting ideas of, uh, of internationalism and, uh, and cultural connections, which once again, these days seem to be threatened. Yes, lovely. And, uh, and you, Teresa, you already touched upon the importance of technologies for, uh, for minority languages that kind of fits into it as well. But uh, yeah. 
How do you see your research? Yeah, impact? I think um, my motivation, for, my motivation for really wanting to publish about this and talk about it, um, and my shameless plug, I have a TEDx talk on it as well. But oh, excellent! We'll put that, that in the, in the notes to try. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but the point of that was to try to um, number one encourage people to use their language more online and not to be so uh, reserved and. Um, anxious about it, um, maybe lacking in confidence, whatever it is, and to show how technology can help you connect with other people, mm. uh, you know, in a network or broaden your network. But I think, like, I'm a big believer in linguistic diversity, and we have some sort of strange issue going on here in Ireland. Um, and you really only notice it after you've lived overseas in a normal bilingual society, and then you come back <laughs> and you're thinking, why do we need to choose one or the other? So you have people who are anti-Irish and you have on the other side, Irish speakers who are anti-English and it doesn't need to be one or the other. I think we can have a bilingual society for those who want to live in a bilingual way. Yes. It shouldn't be such a big issue about it. And what I liked with the code switching is that you can see the languages don't have an issue with each other, right? That's so unless, That's well, a nice unless, way to unless it's a verb, unless you're a verb. Yes. Like there is no <laughs> verbs have with a tough time. Mixing, yeah. Verbs have a tough time. They're a bit too rigid. They, mm. you know, they don't want to to ease up. But um, they they seem to mix so seamlessly and with ease. Like what I was saying, we you know we can switch over and back. There's something lovely about that integration. Mm. And I think from a, a human level, we should be able to accept that. And be I, I, even if you don't speak Irish, you don't want to, just accept that somebody else does. Mm. Great. And for equally in the Irish side, if somebody chooses not to speak Irish, great. That, like they don't need to. But yeah. I just think the the two languages can coexist and should be able to. There is no real reason why when you go to other countries where multiple languages exist. Um, I mean, Luxembourg for prime example. Mm. <laughs> languages yeah. coexist there. No big deal. Um, and I think we, maybe to our detriment, we've grown up, we say we uh, in Ireland, we grew up in a sort of um, a mostly monolingual society where when you're an English speaker, you feel you don't need to learn another language. Mm. And you'll notice that when you go traveling out in the world, you meet other people who have four, five, six languages, you know. <laughs> and to our shame, most of us will only have one and a little bit of another that we learned in school as a second mm. language. So um, I think linguistic diversity is um, we're really starved for that in mm. Ireland. And there's absolutely no reason why. Um, so I, that's maybe the motivation for me delving in and wanting to uh, yeah. to look into it deeper and maybe highlight yeah. what's in there and maybe the tweets were a way of showing mm. here's a new here's a snapshot of the language in a you know on a different platform but here's a snapshot of it evolving naturally mm. where people feel safe to to coexist. Um, that's yeah. beautiful. Thank you for that. And uh, also, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. That's a uh, that's very well put. And then to um, to finish off the podcast, my final question to you guys is because we've um, we were talking before this recording about what we would talk about. And I think all of us think it's very important to stress the element of collaboration um, that we have in our work and the element of um, uh, cross linguistic and interdisciplinary collaboration in particular uh, and the role that um, 
uh, institutions play in facilitating that. Uh, so my question to you is if you could design your dream university or your dream program even, what would that uh, look like? Teresa, would you like to, uh, to give us an insight into your dream university? Yeah, so a very <laughs> university. I think interdiscipline, interdisciplinary um, studies are so important. Now I would say DCU, I might sound biased because this is where I'm based, but they are definitely in the past few years trying to connect different departments and not having departments work in silos. So they're trying to come up with modules that will um, have different departments involved. I was lucky in my own sense back in the day when there used to be a computational linguistics undergraduate degree. And so we had the, we were based in the School of Computing, but we did a lot of work in um, Salas, the School of Applied Languages and Intercultural Studies. So that's where I would have done linguistics and French. So for me, I came through all of that thinking this is normal, but it turned out it wasn't. It was quite unique for the mm. time. That degree was done away with. And oh. in Ireland, mm which is what I've noticed when I was trying to recruit people for my own project, we have such a lack of interdisciplinary studies. So for example, in terms of technology and language mixed, because they're just seen on this, you know, two sides of the spectrum. Yes. Um, there's a degree offered in Trinity College, um, but very few people come out of that degree with Irish language. So mm. already, I mean, you're you're waiting for the next one or two people. Right. Wow. <laughs> the numbers yeah. might have increased in the last few years, but it, it really is difficult. Um, and on top of that, for my own work, uh, linguistics in Ireland seems to have a focus on sociolinguistics mm. and translations for whatever reason, historical. But on the hunt for a syntactician, right. it was like a holy grail, <laughs> uh, almost non-existent. There's um. There's a, they teach it in the same course in Trinity and uh, TUD, um, there's a module as well, I think for first year undergrads. So without this lack of, you know, planning ahead for the mixture of technology and linguistics and language, there's very uh, bleak future for language mm. technology for Irish, because we yeah, just don't, yeah. we don't have the skills um, a part of the reason for putting my program together, the four-year program, was to have a new generation. So we have Lauren Cassidy's actually continuing the work that I was doing on tweets. Mm -hmm. So Lauren's bringing it up to the parsing level for the for tweets. Um, and then Abigail Walsh is looking at um, automatic processing of multi-word expressions in Irish, you know, mm -hmm. um, through that way. Um, but we need actual courses. Not yes. enough just to have, you know, work with one or two postgraduate students. You need actual courses that are going to blend these skills um, because you can't pick that stuff up overnight. Mm. You can't just bring somebody in for six months and say, now go learn syntax for Irish. Yes. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't work, right? Well, yeah. We have Python skills, but you don't have linguistic knowledge. Or it might be you're the best linguist in the world and you're terrified of uh, a keyboard. Mm. And so, yes. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The ideal, the ideal scenario would be um, an environment where, again, these things don't need to be mutually exclusive. They could yes. just happily coexist yeah, yeah, yeah. and that somebody could possibly choose a module from another department. Yeah, maybe in, yeah. in the way some other countries you can do that. So. Yeah, well, I happen to know it's a long winded answer. So. No, it's a great answer. Uh, and I was talking to uh, Nina of the Celtic Students Association yesterday, actually. And so I happen to know a lot of students are listening to this podcast. So consider this a call to arms to uh, all the students listening to uh, 
keep um, badgering your universities for more courses and exchange programs and interdisciplinarity because that's the way to go. And it's uh, these types of things. Um, it helps if it comes from the students as well. If the students ask for these types of yeah. things, uh, that actual, is a great I mean, help. In, in humanities, for digital humanities, if they had courses on board for just learning Python, Yes, because some people mm. could turn out to be really good with Python and you could show that in humanities, especially if you're trolling through digitized for, versions of text, it reduces a lot of the manual effort if you're able to write some scripts. Yes, yeah. it's as simple as that, you yeah. know, yeah. or even that you understand what you're looking for. So you can go and talk to a developer or an engineer <laughs> and say, yes. I, this is what I know I want and yes. I know it's possible. To so, talk developer you know? speech. Yeah, I've learned that during my PhD <laughs> as well, but uh, we had to, we used yeah. a middleman. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because it was uh, it was quite tricky. And Jacopo, your your dream program or dream university, what would that uh, consist of? Yeah, my, my answer has to be manuscripts. Mm. Uh, so the focus would be on manuscripts. Uh, to use the, the, the trite expression of the digital revolution, well, uh, in our field, the digital revolution has been the availability of manuscripts. Yes. Prior to the internet, uh, looking at a manuscript was an aristocratic exercise, yes. open only to very few people. Yeah. Uh, now we live in a world where we can access freely, without any subscription or university portal, thousands and thousands of medieval manuscripts. So the sources are democratically open mm. to, to everyone. Yeah. Uh, the problem is that, as, as, as we say, we have an expression in Italian, it, it's a situation where we have bread, but we don't have teeth. Yeah. Could you say uh, it in Italian for this uh, multilingual uh, podcast? We say, chi ha il pane non ha i denti e chi ha i denti non ha il pane. Who has bread doesn't <laughs> have good. teeth and, and those who have, who have teeth have no bread. Uh, so it, it, this is one of those situations. We have all those manuscripts. But uh, a manuscript is a very complex object. Hmm. A manuscript is, a, is not a, like a printed book. It's a living object uh, that changes through time. Hmm. And uh, it reveals something new every time you look at it from a different angle. Yes. And so we need programs where the manuscript is the, the center, but that center is explored from lots of different point of views. In order to study a manuscript completely, you need uh, historical linguistics, uh, vernaculars, uh, technical competence in codicology, paleography. Uh, you need to know about medieval history. Uh, you need now to have uh, a certain degree of competence, certainly in digital humanities. Not only, uh, Teresa was mentioning Python, uh, courses in XML coding would be extremely useful mm -hmm. as well. Uh, network theory is being applied uh, very, very successfully to manuscript studies. So a highly interdisciplinary look at all the different possible angles that manuscripts offer would be amazing. But yeah. I would sign up in a heartbeat, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we just need to find a uh, a far-sighted uh, institution yes. ready to invest in something like that, which at the moment doesn't seem very likely. But you know. <laughs> no, but we'll keep we'll keep trying. We won't give up like those medieval monks uh, <laughs> exactly. in the midst of all their turmoil. Okay, uh, I think that uh, wraps up our podcast. Is there anything else you would uh, like to say or stress or even do a shameless plug for? Because that's what we're here for. 
No, I just no. want to thank all the all the listeners for uh, bearing with us for for such a long time. <laughs> you say all and, the listeners. Uh, In fact, I don't actually know. <laughs> I well, hope there are any. No. <laughs> uh, whoever is we out there. We can promote it on Twitter. Yes. <laughs> in Irish and in Dutch and exactly. in <laughs> English. Yeah. And Latin. Yeah, and ooh, that will be interesting. I'll leave that to you, Jacopo. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, many thanks to you, Nika, for uh, for inviting us. No, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, great. You thank too. you so much. It was uh, it was an honor to have the two of you together and I think it worked out really nicely. It was a bit uh, terrifying as an experiment, but I think I'm really happy with the way the connections were made between the Middle Ages and uh, modern tweets. So uh, that's... Uh, who would have thought? I know, yeah, that's I'm very, very happy with the result. So then uh, my thanks to you guys, but also to um, all the people, as we wrap up this season, uh, all the people on the background who have helped me. So we have Margaret Irons at the library of the School of Celtic Studies, who's uploading all these podcasts to to our internet. Uh, And then uh, Christina Cleary, who helped me set up uh, in the beginning and uh, talk through the format. Uh, And then we have Sylvan van der Zwach, who made the the groovy tune for it. Uh, And uh, Marinka Stum, my sister, who's helping me do all the sound and technical bits so thank you all for listening to this first season and we hope uh, you'll join us again next academic year for season two all right slam the <laughs>